Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. This morning our call to confession comes from Proverbs 30, verses 18 through 19. Three things are too wonderful for me, for I do not understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This proverb uses examples from God's creation to create an analogy of comparison. Another list, like others we find in the Proverbs, which moves us from incompleteness to completeness, from three to four things, the first three being examples from nature. Each example, the eagle in flight, the snake on a rock, the ship in the sea, represents those things that are easily concealed from our knowledge and understanding. The eagle, snake, and ship leave no trace of where they have come from or where they are going. This is wonderful and marvelous until we come to the fourth thing. The fourth is hidden iniquity. What happens behind closed doors and dark corners because of man's lustful thoughts and actions? The proverb is not discussing the sanctity of the marriage chamber, a beautiful and wonderful thing, but rather those thoughts and deeds that are hidden from view. This is a devastating commentary on the sin of our own culture, which instead of at least hiding these things so that they are unknown, tends to flaunt and throw it in our faces. Our culture is more like the people of the time of Jeremiah when he said, were they ashamed when they committed the abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. So we come this morning not only confessing the sins of the culture that we are in, but confessing our own sins. We are reminded that we carry secret sins, thoughts, deeds, and actions. Those things which we ought to have done but have not, and those things which we should not have done but have. With that, we are reminded that we need to humble ourselves before God and confess our sins to Him. Please kneel where you are, if you are willing and able. morning to our message, I do want to begin with the scriptures, and I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the work that you have done and the work that you are doing. And we ask that as we hear these words, that they would truly come from you. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work them in us. We ask for your grace and your mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk this morning about the gospel according to Jeremiah. The gospel according to Jeremiah. I wonder how many of us have ever had the experience of having good advice to give, maybe even an important warning that ultimately fell on deaf ears. I'm not talking about a strong opinion about something, because far too often... Honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, far too often we get offended and bent out of shape because others don't see things our way. Now, I'm talking about the kind of situation where you know absolutely, without a doubt, that you're right. Maybe you know you're right because of past experience. Or maybe because you have some inside information that everyone else was not privy to. Maybe, just maybe... You don't necessarily know how or why you are right, but the conviction is so strong that it can be no other way. Regardless, I can tell you, as I am sure you know, that being in that situation must be the most frustrating, infuriating, helpless feeling that one can have. I can think of someone who felt that very way on October 16, 1938. He had been giving warning after warning, and even though his convictions were strong, people just did not seem to want to hear. He was sure that the policies that had been put into place meant disaster. Not only for his own countrymen, he had been outspoken against those policies for some time, but for many around the world. Winston Churchill called on his own people and the Americans to strengthen themselves as a last-ditch effort to avoid war with Nazi Germany. History now teaches us how that went. And Churchill, forever after, referred to the Second World War as the unnecessary war. I can't imagine anyone who felt more frustrated and helpless than Churchill must have felt. Ah, yes, but there was Jeremiah. To look for the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jeremiah is to look at Jeremiah's ministry and life. And what I mean is that one can look at the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, ultimately the gospel in flesh, and see very clearly how it parallels the ministry and life of Jeremiah. So let's begin by very briefly tracing some of those parallels. 
First, we have Matthew's gospel. He is the only one that refers to Jeremiah by name. Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We should note that this parallels Mark 8.28 and Luke 9.19. The other gospel writers, in recording the answer of the apostles, refer more generally to one of the prophets. Some have pointed to the fact that Matthew draws a connection between Jeremiah and Jesus, because Jeremiah is the prophet who spoke against the temple while physically standing within it. And Jesus, much like Jeremiah, had a prophetic ministry against the temple. Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We can further see the parallel between Jesus and in Jeremiah, as we hear not only Jeremiah's prophecy against the temple, but also the leaders, the priests, the people's reaction. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate, without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death, because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Notice here that Jeremiah basically undergoes a trial in the temple for the words that he spoke against the temple and receives a sentence of death, much like the scene that we see Jesus undergoing leading up to his crucifixion. There are certainly other parallels as well. For example, both had a ministry of condemning the leader's hypocrisy and predicting disaster without repentance. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Listen to Jeremiah. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. Both lamented over Jerusalem and when he drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In Luke 19. And Jeremiah in chapter 9 says, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Both were rejected 
by the religious and political leaders of the day. Now, Pasher, the priest, the son of Emer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. In reality, this comparison can go on and on. Both were taken into Egypt because of political persecution. Both were falsely accused, arrested, and beaten. Both were rejected by the secular Jewish king of the Jews. Most of this we are familiar with in regards to Jesus' life and ministry, but it is all absolutely true in respect to Jeremiah as well. Yet, to refer to this book as the gospel according to Jeremiah may seem to assume too much regarding the parallels. Certainly the parallels are there, but does that mean that the gospel is either explicitly or implicitly found in the words of Jeremiah? I think so. And in many ways I think Jeremiah preaches the same message that Jesus preached in the same way. And I believe that we can see this in verse 10 of chapter 1. I'll read it again for us. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. First, let us recall that these are God's words to Jeremiah, laying out for him the ministry that Jeremiah has been called to. Many have explained that this verse, early in the prophecy of Jeremiah, reflects a threefold message that Jeremiah preaches over the course of 40 years. First, pluck up and break down, refers to preaching against sin. Although the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry was during the years of Josiah's reign, a reign that was marked by some level of revival, his prophetic call came five years before the discovery of the scroll and a renewal of the covenant. Therefore, Jeremiah's earliest messages to Judah were messages of condemnation and calls to repentance. Second, we read, destroy and overthrow, and this refers to Jeremiah's message of judgment. In fact, the comprehensiveness of Jeremiah's message is seen not only in the message of judgment leveled against the people of God if they don't repent, but also in God's plan to destroy and overthrow the surrounding nations as well. I'll just list these for us this morning. But he prophesies against Egypt in chapter 46, the Philistines in chapter 47, Moab in chapter 48, Ammon in chapter 49, Edom in chapter 49, and Damascus and Kedar and Hazor in chapter 49. To be clear, God is not arbitrarily choosing nations to destroy, but instead, only after declaring his sovereignty over the nations, does he then, through the prophetic words of Jeremiah, predict judgment upon them for their refusal to and failure to accept his sovereignty and submit to him. Listen to these words. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. In Jeremiah 27. Third, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 10, we have that third part. Build and plant. And this is a message of hope and renewal. This is most clearly seen in the episode in which Jeremiah buys land from his cousin, only to have his secretary, Baruch, take the scroll and bury it in a clay pot so that it would be there to be read when relatives return from exile. I want us to have a full picture of what Jeremiah does, knowing that everyone is going into exile, knowing that there's going to be generations of people not in the land that was given to them. He buys this land and he puts it there so that when the family returns, they will have it. That is hope. Hope for renewal. Listen to these words. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Jeremiah 32. Now, what I'm submitting this morning is to look, to look at Jeremiah and see the gospel is to see Jesus Christ. And to see the gospel and to see Jesus Christ in Jeremiah is to see application for the church today and more broadly for the world today. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12 are profound in the light of Jeremiah's prophecy. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here we find Jesus' message of hope and renewal, specifically directed at his followers toward the very first beginnings 
of the formation of his bride, the church. In fact, this comes in a section of the gospel in which Jesus calls out some of the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership. There's a change taking place. It's the beginning of the church, his bride. And in that beginning, he's calling out the leadership for their hypocrisy. In Luke 12, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus' message of hope and renewal, much like Jeremiah's, is never isolated from the message of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. It is a package deal. In fact, both Jeremiah and Jesus know that building up and planting cannot take place prior to the plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. Yet, and I would submit this morning, this is the punch of the gospel. That message will always be one of hope and renewal for those who belong to Christ, his bride, the church. Francis Schaeffer, in discussing Jeremiah, once said that he is the quintessential prophet for today because he provides an extended study of an era like our own, post-Christian. If what Schaefer says is true, then what does this mean for the church today? Brothers and sisters, what does this mean for you and me, for our children and our children's children? What does this mean for Christians around the world? And what does this mean for the city, the places that we live in, work, go to school, play, vote, our communities? First, gospel judgment both in Jeremiah's day and Jesus' day focuses on a lack of faithfulness, and according to both Jeremiah and Jesus, that lack of faithfulness was most clearly observed in the temple. The heart of not just Israel's life, but the heart of Israel's worshiping life. God desires faithful people. And that faithful people display their faithfulness to him in right worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23 and 24. Second, Jeremiah's and Jesus' gospel message is not a message. I want everyone to hear me clearly this morning. It is not a message of winning it back. It is not a message of going back to the old ways. Their message was a wait-on-God message. Wait and see what God is going to do, because He is doing something new. Jeremiah's message of hope and renewal includes instructing those that are faithful to go to Babylon and be faithful in Babylon. Jesus' message to His followers, as we have already seen in Luke, is to let God be sovereign over the nations, because He is. And don't worry about anything. I want to be clear as we begin to wrap this up that waiting on God to see the new thing that he does has absolutely nothing to do with sitting back and doing nothing. 
That's the problem so often today, that we equate waiting on God with inactivity and inaction. It is not about choosing to not polish the brass on a sinking ship, but rather, as Luther put it, to plant the apple tree today, even though the world, or the world as we know it, is ending tomorrow. We, God's people, the church, are better positioned than anyone else to actively wait on the Lord, read the signs of the times, and do wonderful things. If not us, who else? That is right. Waiting on the Lord is filled with action. And Bible history shows us this. Joseph waited on the Lord to see the new that God was going to do by faithfully running Potiphar's house, and then running the prison, and then running Egypt. Joseph's faithful, active waiting saved God's people and Egypt. Ruth faithfully waited on the Lord to see the new thing that he would do by loyally taking care of her mother-in-law. She then waited on the Lord by going after Boaz, securing salvation for her family and ultimately the world and everyone in it. Esther waited on the Lord by faithfully winning a beauty contest to become queen, something that I am not qualified to do. And then by faithfully going into the king without an invitation, securing salvation for her people and people everywhere. Daniel waited on the Lord by faithfully serving him as a high official within the Babylonian court, securing salvation not only for God's people, but probably Nebuchadnezzar and a whole generation of Babylonians. Interestingly enough, it is another prophet, Isaiah, in a different call, in a slightly different context, who provides a wonderful summary of all that we have said today. The gospel message lived and exemplified by Christ, preached by Jeremiah, the gospel message of hope and renewal following judgment, the gospel message to wait upon the Lord so that we might do wonderful things in faith by the strong right hand of the the Lord. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, As we go forth from this place today, my prayer for each and every one of you, for your families, for your friends, for your communities, this city, this place, is that God would strengthen us as we wait upon him to do great and marvelous things, that we may mount up with wings like eagles, that we may run and not be weary, that we should walk and not faint. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, may these words be an encouragement to each and every one of us. May these words renew our strength, our hope, even our understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would, by your grace and your mercy, Help each and every one of us to faithfully and actively wait upon you. We ask that you would use us to do great and marvelous new things according to your will in the world around us. And we ask that you would renew us as you come to meet us weekly and even daily. 
We thank you for the work that you are doing. We ask now that as we pray the words that your son taught us, First Corinthians chapter 11 we read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord instituted the supper on the night when he was betrayed. The indications from the Gospel are that he probably served the elements of the supper to his betrayer, Judas, who was already under the influence of Satan himself. And Jesus knew this. At the first celebration of this supper, and it was still a celebration, for Jesus gave, us, gave thanks. The table was marred by the presence of a false one. Jesus knew this, and he established the sacrament anyway. The sacraments are what God says about them. They are never about what men say about them. We are told to take and eat. We're not told to take and speculate and ruminate in ourselves. As we think about the presence of the traitor at the first Lord's Supper, this make us, makes us think of all the traitors that have been present at this table since that time, even down to the present. But instead of looking around us for a Judas, we need to understand that each of us brings more than enough of Judas to the table ourselves. But we know that the sin of Judas was not that he was at the table, as sinful as he was. His sin was so great that he departed from the table and went out into the night. If you obstinately cling to your sin, even if you remain in your seat, you are following him there. But if you confess the goodness of God to you and his free forgiveness to you, then God is here, giving you nourishment, nourishing bread and rich wine. So today we invite to the table all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. When we eat and drink the bread together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God that we're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the table that Christ has prepared for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.